It's not hard to get called a Scrooge today. If you have any like challenges with the Christmas season, the Christmas story, people are very swift to sort of call you like a grumpy Scrooge. Um, and being one, I always take that to heart. Uh, so moment of confession, I'm always sort of a little bit grumpy. I often tell people, and I'm sure I've told this congregation, is I'm not so worried about the war on Christmas as much as I am worried about the war on Advent. The season we exist in right now for Christians is Advent, and the world celebrates it like it's Christmas. And then after that, we go into Christmas season, and the world celebrates returns and, and gifts and busyness, and then college football which is an interesting way to tell time, and yet the Christian story gives us a different way of telling time. Now, nobody calls the writer of the Gospel of Mark a Scrooge, at least not that I've heard, but the writer of the Gospel of Mark doesn't really have any time for the Christmas story. What Jamie read for us comes right at the beginning. It says, in the beginning of the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes into John the Baptist in the wilderness. John the Baptist and Jesus are, you know, in the womb at the same time in Luke's gospel. That's something we know from the Christmas story. But Mark just jumps right into the story itself. And if you follow with the gospel of Mark, if you move with the gospel of Mark, he moves very fast. One of the phrases that you'll see most often in the gospel of Mark is immediately, immediately, immediately. Things just begin to move fast through the gospel of Mark. But what Mark starts with is this news that Jesus has come onto the scene. He starts with the beginning. Now, one of the things for the sermon today, for those of you who like to know maybe where I'm going at the outset of the sermon, um, is that I want to look at sort of just three spaces, three places where the Christians can sort of stay in the world. The first is, is story. The second is, is promise. And then the last is some, some, some reflections on sort of hope and the way it relates to story and to promise. Now, the Gospel of Mark opens with that phrase, in the beginning. And I love this summary of how the Gospel of Mark starts because I think we can miss it in sort of the ways that it comes. But it says, the opening scenes of the Gospel of Mark remind one of minimalist theater, collapsing a world of meaning into a few concentrated images punctuated by divine voices offstage and human cries at the center stage. The prologue narrates the story of an invasion, throwing existence as usual into sharp relief. Prophetic muses long silence suddenly sing again. Messenger is announced and in turn heralds the advent at long last of one strong enough to wrestle away the world from the grip of the powers. This leader appears on the horizon of history and in its dramatic symbolic action declares himself an outlaw. This immediately provokes a challenge from the prince of the powers of the world himself who takes the leader deep into the wilderness where he disappears. In this prologue, Mark wields a multiplicity of images of apocalyptic symbols clearing narrative space from the weeds so that the seeds of the radical new order, to borrow the other author's own interpretation, might be pressed into the weary soil of the world. This subversive story is what Mark entitles good news. Now, one of my favorite parts about the Advent season is the ethics that we sing, the ways in which we look at the world. 
that writer says about the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is that he pushes seeds into the weary world. He pushes something that's going to spring up into new life. Christmas hymns, Christmas songs, should say Christmas songs probably more than hymns because many of them aren't hymns, see the world as happy the way it is. Jingle bells. There isn't a whole lot of a weary world in jingle bells. Many of the cultural Christmas songs that we have don't quite have the same tinge to them that Advent does, in which it names, I think, the world faithfully. And the story that we have in Scripture, I think, names story faithfully. And so what Mark begins with is by calling this story gospel, or as we call it, good news. Now, gospel in the, in the first century world didn't exist in the way that Mark uses this term. Mark almost invents a genre when he writes this gospel. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but if you're into like dating when the gospels were written, which is not something that I'm that into, but if you are into it, Mark is most often considered the first written gospel. It's the first written story of all that Jesus has done. So Mark, in this sort of way of saying that here is the gospel of this one, invents a genre, invents a story. Now, most of us are maybe immune to this notion of good news, that like, well, good news is a phrase we hear all the time, it's particularly concerned with the Christian story. But if you were a first century reader of this text, and it said, you know, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would go, well, gospel, good news often comes from a battlefield, often comes from a conflict in the world, often comes from those sorts of challenges. And so if you were to read this and to say, this is the beginning of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, you would say, what is this good news that's coming from this victory? What is this good news of this challenge to the way things are? What is this good news from this struggle in the world? Gospel names a story format that Mark invents. Now, there's this way in which we live, when we live with story, and Christians have this temptation to live with concepts more than story. But if we live with story, story is not something we're capable of mastering. Stories generally take control over us. We don't get inside a story very easily. It takes time for us to live and to move into story. Story is one of the big challenges of our world. And so when we, when we say that the gospel begins as story, we say it's something that can narrate the world. Not only can it narrate the world, but it can faithfully tell us the stories of the world. One of the things I think that the church can hold true as gospel is that this is the true story. This is the place, the enactment of what God has done. As we follow Jesus through life and into the world, we see the deep and honest struggles of a weary world, and through one that is God, the the overcoming of it, the one who is light and life and salvation in the world. That The gospel story tells us faithfully of this world is one of the things that we know. And so this is, an author says that we live by many forms and patterns. And if the forms are bad, we live badly. We live by many forms and patterns. And if the forms are bad, we live badly. For Christians and for us, gospel is good form. 
Story is good form. And this helps narrate the world into the ways in which Jesus is righteousness for us. He is justice and peace for us. He is the beginning of salvation here in the world. And so that, that's the first word. The second word is promise. And what I meant to say at the beginning, sorry, this moving is throwing me off, <laughs> um, is that, the, that these three readings we had this morning, the reading from the psalm, the reading from the book of Isaiah, and the reading from the gospel of the Mark, really make sort of a three-stranded chord that make up what we call gospel. They make up sort of a story. They actually rely and fill out each other. One of the ways I think is helpful to think about this is we're hearing the story of what God has done. We're hearing the story of what God is doing. And we're hearing the story of what God will do in the fulfillment of things. That this story, this three strands, it has a present tense, it has a past tense, and it has a future tense. And each one of these play into it. One of the things that I think that Isaiah holds out for us is promise. Now, Mark injects that, that, that Isaiah reading right into his story. Now, I don't know about many of you, but we're in a world that promises aren't held well. Now, if you're familiar at all with like postmodern thinkers, and I would encourage you not to get familiar with postmodern thinkers, not because there's anything wrong with it, but the way they use language will break your mind, and it's impossible to read them for very long without wondering, are these people just high? Are they making any sense at all? Um, but if you're familiar with that at all, we're beginning to say enter an era where we can't promise every, anything, they say. Promises are a promise of a future that we can't guarantee. So wise people just won't promise. You sort of buy into what they're saying. Promises are bound to fail. Promises such as weddings or, or to tell the truth or to, I mean, all these things, funny enough, we see in our culture right now too, are just failing of what Isaiah is confronting. And so that reading opens with this comfort, comfort, speak to my people. What God says is, as the church exists in Israel and before in exile, and Israel before it existed in exile, and as we ourselves exist in our self-imposed exiles, God is one who speaks comfort to those places. Comfort, comfort, my people. The Bible has a lot of judgment in it. It has a lot of damnation in it. Now, I first believe that I don't think it's hard to look into the world and to see what needs to be damned and judged. God does that throughout Scripture. Addiction, the ways in which we pull ourselves apart, our lives apart, suicide, war, um, racism, uh, injustice, all these things are things we know should be condemned. But what God speaks after judgment is comfort. God speaks to his people as if he were a shepherd for them. Now, I love the word of comfort that the book of Isaiah gives, is it says, you know, that their people, you people are like grass, and when it's hit by the sun, it'll wither and die. Israelite in exile. Well, that's surely not that great of news. We kind of knew that, that we are like grass and that our days are numbered. More often than not, most of the Israelites and most of the people in the church, us, as we await the second return of Jesus, will die in phases of, of exile. 
But what the prophet continues with, and this, is, this goes back to that dying thing, that the great, one of the greatest parts of any good story is it tells the truth. We are like grass and we will wither. But what he continues with is that the word of the Lord will stand forever. The one that you know, the one that speaks comfort to you, the one that has brought you to this place in the book of Isaiah, often it will say, is the one whose word of renewal will stand, whose one whose word won't fail. That God's promise, going back to promise, is what will never fall. The renewal of this world, the renewal of this place, is something that will never fail. That's the promise we have from God, and that is the good news that Isaiah speaks to us. But the last reading, the one from the psalm, begins with people in exile as well. And I'll read the whole thing now. It's not that long, Psalm 85. Lord, you've been kind to your land. You've changed Jacob's circumstances for the better. You've forgiven your people's wrongdoing. You've covered all their sins. You've stopped being furious. You've turned away from your burning anger. You, the God who can save us, restore us. Stop being angry with us. Will you be mad at us forever? Will you prolong your anger from one generation to the next? Won't you bring us back to life again so that your people can rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord. Give us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord God says because he speaks peace to his people and to his faithful ones. Don't let them refute, return to foolish ways. God's salvation is very close to those who honor him so that the salvation, so that this glory can be lived in our land. Faithful love and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the ground. Righteousness gazes down from heaven. Yes, the Lord gives what is good, and our land yields its previous produce. Righteousness walks before God, making a road for his steps. The psalmist sees as this land that's been changed by God. Now, if you're in an agrarian society, which most of our Old Testament is, is in, a land that is barren is very bad news. A land that is fruitful is very good news. The psalmist says is that we've lived in barren land and we've lived in lifeful land. And is that you, God, that renews the places who renews faithfulness and life unto the earth, who brings life out of what is cursed. And now what this gives us, I think, is hope. And three big virtues of the church, faith, hope, and love. But this, this one settles us deeply into hope. One of my favorite things about biblical hope is that we live, we can say, on borrowed time. That what God began in Jesus, and we talked about this last Sunday, and will be bring to completion in his return is this new creation that begins again and heals everything. And so as we live between those two times, we live on borrowed time. We live in the hope of the promise of which God will give us, but we also live in the world that still awaits that. But this time, we know, is God's way of bringing about his good news. We live in this borrowed space. 
What I think biblical hope can produce within us during that time is patience. Patience is something that moms like, in my experience. Learn to have some patience. Maybe your mom wasn't like mine, but that was something that I heard. But I think from the expansive way of looking at patience, it means so much more because when you have patience, ways of dealing with the world and solutions of it are open to you that aren't open to other people. If you feel the need to explain why tsunamis happen, you may actually get caught up in that, right? But if you have patience, you have the ability to sit with people and weep with them. You don't need to fix everything. In a world in which it says that we should rush and hurry, especially around these holiday seasons, to have patience is a way in which we can change things. We can sit and be with our friends and our neighbors, have meals. Patience opens up different possibilities. In a world of violence, patience is one of the ways in which you can live nonviolently towards others. You know that things take time, that peace takes time, that the world takes time, and to wait, to have patience, gives you other choices and places to be that aren't open to those who don't have patience. So as we live in this borrowed time with God, as we live in this place of story and promise, we have this ability to have patience. Because as Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is bringing life here and now. Let us pray.